You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Father, we thank you and praise you for um, the church in Philippi and for the way um, we are like them and they're like us and the way you spoke to them so powerfully through your servant Paul. And so we ask now that you would indeed take your word, your written word, Holy Scripture, and would you allow us to enter in? Would you open our hearts to hear and our ears to hear what it is that you would have us hear this morning uh, from you and from your word? And would you always, ever, draw us to your Son, the Word made flesh, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's in his name that we ask this. Amen. Amen. Well, if you um, were with us last week, then maybe you recalled that um, we were talking last week in the first chapter of Philippians. And we are going to go through, uh, we have one more week. Next week we'll go through verse by verse. And I want to cover all the verses, even though there are four chapters and three Sunday morning classes. So part of it you'll have to bear with me, but I believe in that. I believe in reading scripture within its context. And I encouraged you, um, if you were here last week, to go to read through the whole letter in one sitting, if you can, between classes. Because what you'll find is you'll get a sense for the bigger picture and the way Paul uses certain themes all throughout the letter. And that can be really helpful and important. important. You know, We will look today, for example, at the verse, I can do all things through him who strengthens me which is a wonderful verse, but it, it's not as wonderful as it is when you read it in context, and then you really see what it actually means. Um, and you can still apply it to your circumstance, but it uh, you know gives a whole wealth of background to it. So last week, just to summarize very quickly, we looked at um, the part of the letter that involved news about Paul. If you think about a letter or any form of communication, you if even if you're texting back and forth with someone, you'll tell them how you are and ask how they are or vice versa. You'll ask, how are you doing? And then you'll tell them a little bit about yourself. And that's just the way friendship goes back and forth. Here's a little bit about me, Here's and I'll hear and receive a little bit about you. Well, Paul had started out with news about himself. And he had started out news about himself because they were concerned because they knew that he was in prison in Rome for the sake of the gospel. And if we read the book of Acts, you'll see why he was in prison in Rome. He had been um, arrested when he was in Jerusalem in the temple because the Jewish leaders feared that he had brought a Gentile into the temple and into places in the temple where no Gentile was allowed to go. And so that would have been seen as a kind of blasphemy. And so they wanted not just to prosecute him according to their own mob justice, but they wanted the Romans to prosecute him. And so they even had the Romans take him into custody. And the Romans really took him into custody also so that he wouldn't um, be killed accidentally. Um, by the Jewish mob that really wanted him dead. So all that to say he had been, at this point, he's been in prison for several years or imprisoned under guard for several years, both in Palestine, in Jerusalem, and then very quickly, and then in Caesarea for a couple of years. And then when he appealed to Rome, to the Caesar, um, then he was allowed, he was taken to Rome. He got a free ride to Rome. I think he actually appealed to Rome because he wanted a free trip to Rome on the Roman's dime. Um, so he got to go 
gone about. And the end of Acts, you realize the gospel has come even to the capital of the empire. Essentially, the gospel has gone out to the ends of the earth of the earth by the end of the book of Acts because Paul, this amazing apostle, is there in Rome spreading the gospel. And so he had borne witness to this. He's telling the Philippians about this in the first part of the letter. And he had said, um, even though it might seem terrible that I'm in prison, it's actually wonderful because all of my guards are getting to hear the gospel. And those Christians that are there in Rome are encouraged by the boldness of my witness. Even though I'm in chains for the gospel, I, they can't shut me up. I'm still preaching the gospel. And so he was giving them good news, and he is also showing them an example of how to withstand suffering for the sake of the gospel, how to stand true to Christ even in the midst of persecution without losing hope. And that's one of the things about this letter. It's so characterized by a deep and abiding joy even in the midst of great suffering. So last week, chapter 1 showed us news about Paul, and um, in particular, we witnessed Paul's open-handedness toward whatever his near future brought, whether his current imprisonment would result in his death or his release. And we know after the fact that it resulted in his release. Um, and this open-handedness, though, that he betray that he um, shows and displays here, is the open-handedness that's the result of faith. Paul is trusting in the character of God's power and God's goodness. God is able to do whatever God wants to do. He's not hampered um, by any earthly authority. And he's also loving. Paul and we can trust that no matter what is happening in our lives, God is working it out somehow for our good and also for some kind of greater good. He has the big picture, and we can trust that somehow he's doing something good, even though it might not seem like it at the time. Um, and so, um, again, within the midst of suffering, too, one other note about that is that because our salvation is according to his work and not our own, we can trust that suffering is not the result of something that we've done, um, unless it's the direct consequence of a sin. We can trust that God is not punishing us with cancer because of something we did when we were 17. That is not that's not the way God works. We know that he does not condemn us in Jesus Christ, and therefore nothing that we experience in this life, unless he reveals it to us specifically. You know, well, you, you um, I love, I always use the example of a DUI, you know, suffering overnight in jail because you had a DUI. That's suffering because of the consequence of your own sin, obviously. But there, But other than that, we can trust that our suffering is not directly the result of a specific sin of our own, but that God does not condemn us. In Jesus Christ and so we can trust him even in the midst of terrible circumstances and so this open-handedness of Paul's is seen especially in this verse that we looked at last week he's rejoicing um, in the midst of this suffering and imprisonment and he's hoping that he will not be at all ashamed but that with courage he will be able to honor Christ because of their prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ he'll be able to honor Christ either um, by his life or by his death and so he's holding these two options. Either he'll live and be released, or he'll be executed. And yet he's trusting that either way, Christ will be glorified, and that's the most important thing. And so he truly says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Um, what peace we would have if we approached every earthly circumstance with that mindset. Um, if this happens or if this happens, so long as Christ is glorified, I don't care what the outcome is. Um, and he goes on to say he prefers actually to be with Jesus Christ face to face at that point. But he knows that his labor in the Lord is not yet done here on earth. 
So again, this open-handedness of Paul's, throughout the whole letter, we see that it's this open-handedness of faith that brings about joy, great joy, in the midst of very troubling circumstances, and also that peace that passes all understanding, the assurance of our salvation, the assurance of God's goodness, um, whatever may happen, come what may, brings us peace and joy. And so we hear this um, later on, and we hear it, I'll go to two first, we've heard it a little bit in chapter two, um, whether he is poured out as a drink offering or not, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. No matter what happens to Paul, he will rejoice. And again, we hear it at the end of the letter in chapter 4. Um, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That courage, that confidence comes out of the life of faith and the assurance of God's great love for us in Jesus Christ. Um, so there is, again, peace and joy um, for Paul and also for us as our inheritance in the midst of even the most trying circumstances. Just a little um, sub-note on this. My parents were visiting this last week, and one of the things that's so funny about my parents when they um, FaceTime with my daughter, um, they will always sing. I'm like, can we just have a conversation? But they're singing the whole time. It's marvelous. And especially if she's cranky or crying or hungry or tired or whatever, they will sing her out of whatever her circumstances are. because she, And she loves music, so it works out really well. And so when they came in person, all they had to do was start singing some of their songs. And she, she recognized their faces, but it was really the songs that made her um, extra joyful to be able to see them. And one of the songs, of course, they did this with me and my three siblings when we were children as well. So I know all these songs. They're all beautiful old gospel, you know, build your house on the rock, you know, all the hand motions. I wish I were, um, I, you know, a butterfly, but thank you, Lord, for making me meet all of those ones, right? And I'm getting some of them wrong. But the one that I hadn't heard before and that I really loved and that I sing a lot with Althea on my own is the song, um, Joy is a flag flown high from, oh, you don't want to hear me sing it, from my heart, from the castle of my heart, for the king is in residence there. And we'll take whatever flag or flag, lovey, burp cloth, anything, whatever it is, and wave it around. And she's gotten very good at waving around these little flags. But I love the words, joy is a flag flown high from the top of the castle of my heart because the king is in residence there. When King Jesus is enthroned in the castle of our hearts, everyone else will know it because of the joy that we have that doesn't come from our own generation. It's from God's uh, spirit living within us. It is generated by him within us and him being exalted within us uh, causes joy to just be there as well as love and peace. We go into the other verses, but joy, I just even see a flag whipping around in the wind and that's just a joyful sight to me. So it was really fun to be with Althea last weekend and she, we walked out of the church on 20th Street and she looked up at the flags and she started waving her hand around like that, <laughs> wanting me to sing. Um, joy is a flag that flies high over our hearts because of Jesus Christ being enthroned there within. And this is true for Paul. This is true for us. Well, moving on for today's passage in chapter 2, 
It begins in chapter 1, actually. This section begins in chapter 1. And the theme for all of today is that Paul is longing for these first Christians, these Philippians, to be like-minded. He wants them to have uh, an agreement in their hearts towards each other. Um, So Paul has finished the section of the letter that's about him, news about him, and now he's going to news about them. And characteristic to Paul, rather than Paul saying, how are you? Paul is saying, here's how you are. And um, he starts off this section by looking at the Philippian situation, which is one of suffering and persecution that has already happened and that will continue to ramp up in the future at the hands of non-Christians in Philippi, those non-Christians who happen to be their fellow Roman citizens. Paul's bottom line is going to be that he wants them to stand firm in their faith together to have a unified front against, against this outer assault upon the Christian community. And he wants them to stand firm, how? By agreeing, by having this like-mindedness, by having one mind. And he says that this like-mindedness, this unity, is something that happens only when they submit to one another out of love, when they humble themselves and um, promote the other's interests, the other's well-being above their own, when they consider the other better than themselves. This very basic love for our neighbor is something that is Um, something we struggle with as Christians all our life, even as Matt was saying from the pulpit just now. It's something um, that will creep back into our hearts, even um, sometimes for those that are nearest to us, and that's where it's even even the most dangerous. Um, And this is what has happened within the Philippian church, and uh, it would affect, of course, their witness to the love of Christ if they weren't demonstrating this love for each other. And so in these first few verses of this section that will extend through the end of chapter 2, we see the first of many appeals. Let's read. Does someone want to read this if you can see it? If not, I'll read it. Oh, oh. Glenn, are you good? Sure. Glenn, why don't you? Yeah. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Thank you. What do you notice about this passage? I kind of highlighted a couple things, but what else do you notice? Anybody want to weigh in? No pressure. Not frightened. Not being frightened, even in the face of suffering. Again, that joy and peace that they have as well as Paul has because of the gospel um, will strengthen them. Kind of ironic that he says he has been granted to you. Do you think that's always something positive? Not only to believe, but also to suffer. I know. Thanks a lot. What a gift. But he, yeah. And he has talked about that earlier in the chapter, that they are partakers together in the grace of the gospel and in the suffering for the sake of Jesus Christ. That they are considered, and if you think about Acts, then you, probably, you can deal with this better than I can even. Ozzy, it's just in the book of Acts, when the apostles suffer for the sake of the gospel for the first time, they come home rejoicing that they're considered worthy by God to suffer in the way that Jesus suffered, um, to follow in his footsteps in that way. 
Um, and so they will suffer. They have, and part of their suffering, again, is a gift from God. And he, I often think about this when I think of Christians who are suffering all around the world for the sake of the gospel. And I think, wow, I could not have faith like that. And yet, um, I have the same Holy Spirit that they have. And my faith is in the same Lord Jesus Christ as theirs. And so I can trust that um, that God has given me the trials. He's given me for a reason. And were he to send other trials my way, he would be the one to strengthen me to stand in the midst of them. But right now, for this group of people, their characteristic standing firm will involve specifically that they would strive one strive side by side with one mind for the sake for the faith of the gospel. And part of this call, this appeal that Paul makes, is specifically, uh, you know, the what of Paul is saying. He's saying stand firm and st- stand side by side with one mind, agree, be like-minded. And he'll say it again and again. You're going to hear it again in chapter 2. And the, the how of what he's trying to communicate is always interesting because he'll give many hows and many whys as a way of spurring them on, as a way of inspiring them and motivating them to obey. Just like a good parent who says, I want you to eat seven more bites of fill-in-the-blank on your plate, but knowing that the law of fill it, you know, eat these seven more bites is not going to make the child do it, will it? Um, but maybe the airplane will. And so the grace of, I'll sit with you, and you can have some dessert afterwards, and I'll make funny noises with the spoon while you finish up your pork chop. That is what is going to actually help the child uh, obey the letter of the law. And so for Paul, he realizes this with his spiritual children. He's going to give all sorts of different images, um, and he's going to extend grace to them, even in the way he communicates what it is that he desires them to do as a as way of obedience. So one of these ways is... Let your manner of life be worthy. There's a little footnote here because this whole phrase actually means, if you had your Bible open, it would say down at the bottom, let your manner of life means literally live as citizens. Live as citizens of the gospel of Christ. We talked about this briefly last week, but the Philippians were all Roman citizens because of something that had happened under Caesar Augustus in the B.C.s. Um, he had been so thankful to the gods for giving him victory over Mark Antony and for being the top dog in the Roman Empire that he allowed all of these Macedonians in this town of Philippi to become Roman citizens, which was a huge privilege. So those people in this town were very proud of that fact that they were citizens of Rome. And yet here for the Christians, their fellow citizens of Rome, who are not citizens of the gospel, are turning against them and persecuting them. And so it's very important for Paul to assure them that they are citizens of a heavenly kingdom. They are card-carrying members of a different community, one that is even better than being a part of the Roman Empire. And so he's calling them, based on the grace of being citizens of this heavenly kingdom, to live into that identity that they have in Christ, to live into um, who they already are because of Jesus' death and resurrection. And so he goes on in chapter 2. Does someone want to read this um, this passage? Um, and he's going to give us a lot more of the why and a lot more of some of the why and a lot more of the what of what they are to do. Do you want to try it, Kristen? Yeah. Okay. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Do you see how many synonyms he gives here? <laughs> synonyms, remember, are saying the same thing twice, um, saying the equal, saying equal things. 
he starts with a Trinitarian invocation, um, the sign of our empowerment to be able to do what he's calling us to do. We have encouragement in Christ, comfort from the love of God, and we know from other parallel passages where Paul has a threefold invocation like this, that he is identifying Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and often the Father is the one identified with the love of God. So any encouragement in Christ, we can fill in the gap, any comfort from the Father's love, any participation in the Holy Spirit. If all of those things are true, if God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has bought you, has reached out to you in love and fellowship, then um, um, if there's any affection and sympathy, then this is what's possible. This obedience is possible in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it's interesting that the actual verb in this whole sentence is complete my joy. (laughs) Again, Paul is not saying do this, do that. He's actually saying our fellowship horizontally. Yes, you have fellowship with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and he's given you so much. But it's actually our fellowship horizontally that will also spur you on to this action. Because Paul loves the Philippians, and the Philippians love Paul, Paul will be overjoyed to hear that they're obeying um, and that they are having affection for one another even when they haven't been in the past. And so here's the do, that they would be of the same mind, again, repeating the same concept, that they would have the same love, that they would be in full accord and of one mind. He, in case they didn't get it, he's going to get at every single facet of this. And he's going to flesh it out twice, just in case they weren't sure what that means, what it means to love their neighbor as themselves. He's going to say, do nothing from selfish, selfish ambition or conceit. That humility will count others more significant than ourselves. And then again, look not to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Um, again, foregoing pride requires that we forego pride to be able to count others better than ourselves in humility. Wasn't this also what Matt was talking about from the gospel? Um, wasn't that a beautiful C.S. Lewis quote to think, which is interesting, I'm using a C.S. Lewis quote today. The Lord orchestrated all of this, which is so fun. But I loved that about the boots, looking over at someone and kind of having scorn for what they were wearing, and then the Holy Spirit convicting C.S. Lewis to say, I'm not worthy to wash those boots that I have scorned for. Um, isn't that true for each one of us as we look to others and we might judge or we might fill in the blank, and yet um, it, the, the truth of it is that we're not worthy um, to wash the feet of those who are next to us in the kingdom of God. Okay, so Paul's going to go on. This is the ultimate um, why and the ultimate way he is going to urge them to obey. Does someone want to read these few, uh, few verses for us? Is, was that... Did I see a hand in the back or did I? Oh, okay, thank you. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is one of my favorite passages in all of scripture because it so beautifully characterizes what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. So again, this like-mindedness, this agreeing with each other and this humility towards each other that Paul is advocating is actually um, something that is ours in Christ Jesus. Um, It is actually... um, I love this, that it already belongs to the Philippians, and it already belongs to us, 
because of Jesus Christ, because of what he's done, and because it's actually the mind of Jesus Christ himself. And we see this mindset demonstrated in what Jesus Christ has done for us. Um, here we have one of these passages that affirms Jesus' full divinity. Um, he was in the form of God, and he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Um, Jesus Christ is um, equal in abilities and dignity and privileges and power and ontology with the Father himself. We know this from other points in Scripture. When we look at John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus Christ is that Word who existed before coming in the flesh as the baby in Bethlehem. Um, we see also in Colossians, Paul says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This glory that is Jesus's before um, the foundation of the earth, before the creation of the world, is something that was his by right, and yet he, he um, didn't consider them things to be grasped. He forewent his rights. He emptied himself of his rights. He didn't hold on to his rights and his equality with God. He had that ultimate open-handedness that we were talking about that Paul has through faith. He was able to let go of all of what was his. Even though he is king of kings and lord of lords, yet Jesus humbled himself and submitted to life on earth, um, life as one of us. Um, he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Any thoughts about that? Anything you notice about this passage or maybe something that struck you about it reading this this um, time through that maybe you hadn't noticed before? It's poetry. It's beautiful. Ozzy, yeah. you look like... You no, know, I like your phrase. Ultimate open-handedness. That was, that was very nice. That's I think true. that's what Paul has is this open-handedness and it's mimicking and imitating Christ, isn't it? And it's made possible by Christ ultimate open-handedness. Also, I would say that the the Romans had a uh, a way of climbing the ladder. Mm. It was called the uh, uh, Cursus Honorum, mm. the, the way to honor, where you would begin at uh, mm -hmm. one level, and then you would go to the next, and then to the next, and then to be emperor. Of course, only a few could do it. Right. And the Philippians would have known that, and this is like the reverse of that. So true. So it's like a yeah. cursus humiliorum, like a, yeah. humi a way to humiliation. Yeah. So where they would go up, Jesus is going down. Yeah, he's going down the up staircase. Uh -huh. it, well, the um, and I think that up upness was a lot had a lot to do with patronage, right? You mm -hmm. scratch my back, and I'll scratch your back. If you had some wealth, then you could kind of find a patron who had more social status mm -hmm. in a very hierarchical society, super hierarchical. If you found someone higher up on the ladder, you could do a favor for them, and then they would do you the favor of bringing you up the social ladder a little bit more. We still kind of see this a little bit today, unfortunately. But and So sometimes you could work your way up the ladder into society or into politics or into being at power, really, a way of having more and more power. Um, and Jesus is going, that's yes, okay. Thank you for that, Ozzy. Um, again, this is not the lowest point of all, um, this point of, of the incarnation. Um, there is no Christmas without Easter. 
Um, I think we forget this a lot of time. The joy of the celebration of the baby in the manger is only possible because the baby was born, um, but the baby was born ultimately to die. Um, Isn't that the fate of all of us? After Adam and Eve, um, because of Adam and Eve, because of our own sin, we know that each one of us will die one day. Um, And Jesus submitted himself to that reality, even though that was not his reality as being fully God. Um, He submitted uh, himself to the same reality that will claim each one of us one day. And not only did he humble himself to be born and then to die, but here's where Paul really has a full stop. And the sentence ends here, which is unusual for Paul. He could go on on forever and ever. But he ends the sentence here. The form of Jesus' death was the lowest of the low, the most humiliating way a person could die in the first century or really in any era of human history. And Paul underlines this. He was became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Um, there, I hesitate to say this, but this past week I went down to Montgomery for a, a kind of field trip with my parents. Um, a bright, sunny day, and we went down, um, but we went down to go to a, a memorial that has opened up this week. I don't know if you've read about it, but it's a memorial um, that commemorates all of those who were lynched during the era of when those things happened. And it was so sobering and so powerful. Um, And even, as my mother said, I was expecting to feel sorrow and shame, but I was grateful to feel mostly sorrow and not as much shame and actually a sense of dignity being conferred upon those who had died in the most undignified way imaginable. And so even the way that the memorial is set up conveys the way in which they died and yet re-honors the way in which they died um, and conveys dignity upon what had once been the most undignified way to die. And there was even a way in which they recreated the public square. Um, oh, those people who were lynched died in, the most, in a way that was not only excruciatingly painful, but also in a way that was the utmost public humiliation. Um, seen so that others would be deterred from whatever their behavior, however mild it had been, um, they would be deterred from that behavior as well. And um, and so there was such a public honoring within this whole memorial that was really a beautiful reversal. It doesn't make up for it, of course, but there is honor there where there had been no honor before. And I couldn't help but think as I'm passing through this memorial and the way it Um, the way they had certain hanging things, let's just say that, that conveyed the hanging of a lynching. And I couldn't help but think of the one who was hung on a tree um, for you and for me, um, but especially also even for those um, who had done the things like that, um, for whom we would say there's no forgiveness. When we look at even the depths of human sin and wickedness and prejudice, Christ even died for that. Um, And his death, even means that he can enter into those who experience that same depth of torturous pain and humiliation. His death was the lowest of the low, the most painful, the most humiliating death, even death on a cross. And from there, we go low, 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 low. He goes low, 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 and then comes back up. So does someone want to read this um, next part of this hymn to Jesus Christ? Anybody see it? I'll read it if not. I can read it. You can read it? Yeah. Thank you, John. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, 
and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ, you're crossing. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the God the Father. I forgot <laughs> that. You're in the seat where you can't see it if I'm standing where I can see my head. It is funny. Your arm went right <laughs> across the line. <laughs> Jesus is raised up, raised from the dead. His resurrection is the vindication that he really is who he says he is, the Son of God. The resurrection is the amen of the Father to the it is finished of the Son. And it is for this reason, it is because of Jesus' perfect humility that God has highly exalted him, bringing him up, 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 back, back into heaven, seating him at the right hand. It's not that he didn't have that power and authority before he left heaven and humbled himself. It's that now, because he has um, united himself with human flesh now, because of his death and resurrection and ascension, there's now a human being in heaven seated at the right hand of the Father. He paves the way for us in our fallen flesh to be raised from the dead, to join him there. He's the first fruits. He's the first one to sit around the Father's throne there in honor at the place of the right hand. We will join him at the last day. Um, he is paving the way for us. And um, God has bestowed upon Jesus the name that is above every name. This is probably this first part of the name. The second part is Jesus' name here in verse 10. But this part in verse 9 is likely not Jesus' name, but actually the name of Yahweh, the name of God himself. Um, the the name of Yahweh is, one. Um, of course, Jesus is because of his being the second person of the Trinity. But it's now also um, Jesus the man. It belongs to the man God made flesh, um, which is an unheard of concept. God sharing his identity, his character of righteousness with us. And then at the name of Jesus, because of this um, humility and exaltation, at the last day, every knee will bow in, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord um, to the glory of God the Father. Um, again, upon his return, every eye shall see Jesus as he really is. Whether they believe and receive him or reject him all over again, every tongue will confess the truth that the first Christians confessed, that Jesus Christ is Lord. That phrase, Jesus is Lord, was probably one of the first confessions of faith. Because even as Paul says, no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. He says that in 1 Corinthians and again in Romans 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Um, so there is this beauty of confession. Jesus will be seen to be who he really is for all the world to see. Every eye will see, every tongue will confess, every knee will bow. All will know that he is really uh, the Son of God. Any thoughts about that before we keep going on? There's a hymn. Uh, yes? Oh, no, it's just so beautiful that God has married his flesh, his his identity with flesh, yeah. and that they're, you know, that will never be separate. That I know. He has brought humanity into the Godhead, which is just... It's amazing. It's yeah, the ultimate, it. it's the ultimate um, unequal marriage. You know, if you think of, if you ever look at it, this is terrible, but if you ever, much like the looking over at someone with the bad boots in church, but if you ever look at a marriage and you think, wow, well, they're from different circles, you can tell that. And sometimes you'll think that. I, I have friends from New England whose um, mother met, their mother met their father when they were missionaries in China. And they said, well, father could have never even attained to try to even, you know, 
seek her out if they had been in the U.S. because they were in such different circles socially. And yet because of the gospel, there they were in China ministering and they fell in love and were able to get married even in the 30s um, because of the social barriers being broken down on the mission field. But if you ever think about that, this is the ultimate raising up of us from the dregs um, into the very life of God himself. Thank you for that, Christy. I think at this point, I just want to sing. I don't know about you, but we have a wonderful hymn that characterizes this same descent and rise of Jesus Christ, pointing out that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess him, king of glory now. Tis the Father's pleasure we should call him Lord, who from the beginning was the mighty word. Again, he was there at all creation. He was humbled for a season. Um, And he bore that name, the name of Jesus even, bore it back victorious when from death he passed, bore it up triumphant with its human light through all ranks of creatures to the central height, to the throne of Godhead, to the Father's rest, filled even the human name of Jesus with the glory of the perfect rest of heaven. It's one of my favorite hymns. It goes on, there are a couple more verses, but those are the ones that really illustrate the shape of Philippians 2. Well, now for something completely different, except not. (laughs) Whenever I think of this passage, I can't help but think of an illustration from math. I'm never good at basic math, but um, I had a very brief stint of loving abstract math. And if you recall, if you ever had to take calculus or pre-calculus, you'll remember that what is the parabola? Goes down, 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 and then back up when it's drawn like this. Um, there's the sense, I love that shape of the down, 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 down. And with Jesus' descent into humanity, descent even further to die, descent even further than that, to die the kind of death that was the lowest death, the most humiliating death of all, death even at the cross, and then to rise back up into fellowship with the Father, to return to the Father's throne. Um, a parabola, just like any line, is a series of points all along. Um, going out in either direction, strung together in either direction infinitely. And um, based on the way a parabola is shaped, I have to look at my notes for this part. (laughs) Based on the way a parabola is shaped, there are two points that are always matching on either side all the way down at the same height or the y-axis, remember, of the parabola. But then actually, as you get all the way down, only the vertex is alone right here at the bottom. Um, it's also called the minimum point in this kind of parabola. Um, it's the point at the very bottom. And the cross marks this lowest point of the low. And yet it is through this lowest point, the darkest, hardest, loneliest, most painful point of Jesus' whole existence. And really we would say it's the lowest point of all of human history, isn't it? That God himself would die in such a way. It's that lowest point when God works out our salvation. And that's why we call Good Friday good. And because Jesus knew this lowest point, because he plumbed the depths of human suffering, we can trust that he will work even through our lowest points to bring about something good, something good that will glorify him and benefit us ultimately. Well, so what does all of this have to do with the Philippians and with us? Well, this whole example of Jesus Christ was meant to be able to point them to what they were called to do. Um, Again, Jesus himself demonstrates the kind of humility, the example which we are to follow in our relationships with each other. This, um, This example of humility shows us the what of what we are to do and what they are to do, but it's not just the what, it's actually the how 
of how we begin to do this despite ourselves. Because if you recall, this is having, we already have the mind of Jesus Christ. Because of his death and resurrection, because of our faith in him, we are his already. And all of what is his belongs to us. We have his righteousness. And as Paul said in verse 5, we have his mind already. And so the Philippians are called to live into the mind of Christ, which they already possess as being his through his death and resurrection. And so he has a therefore. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed. Maybe they didn't always obey. As you have always obeyed. So now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Um, you would obey if I was there. But I trust that you will obey even if I'm not there. That might not be the case. Um, he is imputing to them what they don't already have. Um, that uh, behavior of obedience. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is not about justification by faith. This word salvation, which we assume is always about justification by faith, is used throughout scripture in different ways to talk about our past salvation, our ongoing salvation, and our future salvation. Essentially in the past, we are saved and delivered from the penalty of sin, which is death. We are freed and given eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ and all sorts of other things are ours through faith in his name. And in the future, when Jesus returns, our sin will die with us and will be raised, will possess that eternal life in actuality. All of what has been promised will be consummated at the last great day. And yet now, between those two days, we live on in this world um, lingering in the midst of sin and suffering. And in the midst of sin, by the power of God, through his Holy Spirit, we are at times, not always, we would like to be perfect right now, but we are saved from the power of sin's presence in our lives. And this is what Paul is talking about. Forego sin and enmity, rivalry and conceit, and live into the calling that is already yours in Jesus Christ. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And he can't give an imperative without the indicative. So he goes back to the indicative. For it is God who works in you. God who works in you by the power of his Holy Spirit. God, through his love, changes our hearts so that our hearts then desire what God desires, essentially righteousness. And then we desire to work for his good pleasure, not as a way of earning our salvation, but actually because we have already been given everything. Um, so again, in the words of the reformer, Philip Melanchthon, what the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. God is the one who transforms our hearts by his love and because of Jesus' downward plunge into our humanity. I cannot, um, I, can't, I don't have time to keep doing all of um, chapter 2, but again, he's encouraging them, telling them to obey and getting specific about what that obedience will look like. Um, and I want to close, I know I just have two more minutes, so I want to close with my quote from C.S. Lewis. Um, Jesus Christ is the diver, the one who has plunged down. And so I'm going to read this. This is one of my favorite quotes from C.S. Lewis, which really um, illustrates this part of Philippians 2, this mind of Christ, present in Christ's identity and in his work. In the Christian story, God descends to reascend. He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity, down to the very roots and seabed of the nature he has created. But he goes down to come up again and bring the ruined world up with him. One may think of a diver first reducing himself to nakedness, then glancing in midair, then gone with a splash, vanished, rushing down through green and warm water into black and cold water, down through increasing pressure into the death-like region of ooze and slime and old decay. 
then up again, back to color and light, his lungs almost bursting, till suddenly he breaks surface again, holding in his hand the dripping, precious thing that he went down to recover. He and it are both colored now that they have come up into the light, down below where it lay colorless in the dark. He lost his color too. And Lewis goes on. No seed ever fell from so fair a tree into so dark and cold a soil as would furnish more than a faint analogy to this huge descent and reascension in which God dredged the salt and oozy bottom of creation. With that in mind, let's pray. <laughs> Father, we thank you and praise you for the work of your son, Jesus Christ, who went low. He went so low as to be born, um, to humble himself, to forego all of what was his by right. And he went so low really for us, to bring us back with him, to redeem us from sin and death, that we would one day join him around your throne, praising you for all eternity. And so we thank you and praise you for this work of your son. We thank you and praise you indeed even for the work that you're doing in our hearts today. And we ask that we, like the Philippians, by your mercy and through the power of your Holy Spirit, would be given the grace to humble ourselves, to go low like Jesus Christ, especially in our relationships with others, to consider others better than ourselves, um, and even um, to let go of our own rights, to forego being right in order that we might be at peace and harmony, to have love one for another, even as you have loved us. And so we ask all this in your name, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.